I opened my Word document and it told me that this week we would be studying the parable of the ten bridesmaids. Pretty quickly I realized there's no way we're going to get around talking about the end times, and so I decided to do what any good Bible student and scholar would do. I googled Jesus' return. I, I looked down through the options and about the, uh, the seventh entry there kind of caught my eye. The question was, is COVID-19 a sign of the end times? And I wondered, is it? So I clicked on the link and I was greeted by a blonde-haired lady with a long red dress who asked in an ominous voice, is COVID-19 a sign of the end of the times? I didn't last very long in the video, and I figured I should probably do at that point what I should have done from the very beginning, is to go to the words of Jesus and to ask Jesus what he has to say about the end times. And so we are going to be looking at the parable of the ten bridesmaids, and our parable requires us to first of all locate where we are in Matthew's gospel and in the text. I'm a fan of going to the mall or going to the airport and looking at a map and you see those yellow circles with those red stars and sign with those three words, you are here. It's really important for me because I'm not great with directions to know where I am before I have any idea about where I'm going. And so this parable is one of those parables that you first of all have to ask, have to ask the question in the text, where are we? And so what we have now is we are in, Matthew is broken up into five teaching sections we are now in the fifth main teaching section of Matthew. Matthew chapter 24 and chapter 25 is the sermon or the teachings about the end times. And so it is here that we begin with Jesus and his disciples having just left Jerusalem. And the disciples, uh, as we read in Matthew 24 verse 1 through 3, as Jesus came out of the temple and was going away, his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. And then he asked them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I tell you, not one stone will be left here upon another. All will be thrown down. When he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will this be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus is going to recognize that there are two questions that have been asked. The first question is, when will the destruction of the temple occur? And the second is, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And so Jesus is going to address these two questions. And he knows that first century Jews associate the destruction of the temple with the coming of the end of the age. Uh, for them, it's like these two are, uh, are a line of dominoes. And the destruction of the temple they see is the first domino that is going to end with the end of the age. And they associate these two things as if they're going to happen very closely. So for us, we would think of it like a, the end of school and graduation. We expect those two things to happen in some sort of interconnected way. It's like the wedding. After the wedding, you expect there to be a reception. When you ask, when is the reception? You expect it to somehow be connected to the wedding. So Jesus is addressing this question where people are asking about the destruction of the temple, which then brings about the question, well, when will the end of the age be? In his response, Jesus will address the destruction of the temple in Matthew 24 verses, 4 through, 24, verses 4 through either 34 or 35. People are going to splice the end of the temple section either at those two verses. That means then beginning at either verse 35 or verse 36, Jesus will begin to address their questions about the second coming or the end of the age. 
And I say that simply because a lot of people get really confused when they start looking at the temple texts and answering the end of the age questions. It's going to get confusing if you do it that way. But if you recognize these divisions, it's pretty clear. And so that's why we get to this um, statement of Jesus in verse 36. But about that day and hour, no one knows, neither the angels of heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. This is where I believe Jesus transitions to entering their question about the end of the age. When it comes to questions about end times, and there are awful, an awful lot of questions, aren't there? Here's what is, I think is important, is that we need to be very clear about we can't, what we can and should know about the end of the age, and what we can't and don't know about the end of the age. I think a lot of mistakes happen in discussions about the end of the age when we make claims that the scriptures don't make. So sometimes the best answer to an end of the age question is simply, I don't know. And the reason I don't know is because we've not been told. Jesus himself says, I do not know either the day or the hour, but only the Father knows. So here's what I think we know from Scripture. And there's an image up there in front of you that, that is, 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 I think, hopefully will help you understand how all of this works. We do know that Jesus indeed has come. Uh, and with Jesus came, he brought with him the beginning of the end. We have the, the old days, and so Jesus comes, and, and while he is here and while he is living, you have many present tense discussions about the kingdom, that, that Jesus is, in fact, bringing with him the kingdom. But we also have this recognition that at the second coming, we will have the consummation or the fulfillment of all things of the kingdom. And so here's what's going to happen in terms of the end of the age. But one of the things that my chart doesn't have, because I don't think the Bible has it, is a timeline. You know, this is going to happen and it's going to be in 2025 that that's going to happen or it's going to be in 2036. What we know is what's going to happen, but what we do not know is what the timeline looks like for when Christ will come again. But that tends to be the most pressing question for us is when. Near the end of chapter 24, uh, Jesus will begin telling us several parables that are going to teach about the end time. So let's look first of all at the parable in Matthew 24, beginning in verse 45. Who then is the faithful and wise slave whom the master put in charge of his household to give the other slaves their allowance of food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master will find at work when he arrives. Truly I tell you, he will be put in charge of all his possessions. So we'll stop there for just a moment and realize Jesus is going to tell us about two slaves. One is wise. The, the wise one is the one who continues doing what the master did. So when he comes back, he's going to find him doing what? He's continuing the work. But the transition is going to happen very quickly to a different slave. But if that wicked slave says to himself, my master is delayed, and he begins to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drinks with drunkards, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour that he does not know. He will cut him into pieces, put him in with the hypocrites, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And I want us to be sure we talk about this wicked slave for a moment. The wicked slave assumes the end is going to come very, very quickly. This would be somebody who we could categorize as having um, overexcitement about the end times. That, that he's very aware that the master is going to come back really, really quickly. Now, the crisis in the parable happens when his expectation is not met. 
Eventually he realizes, you know what? My master is delayed. And his conclusion is not, oh man, the master is delayed, so it's going to be a long time for him to come back. His conclusion instead seems to be, my master's not coming back. So he's not going to have to answer to his master. He's not going to have to be accountable to his master. And now he can do whatever he wants to his fellow slaves. He is disappointed by his expectation of the master coming back quickly. And then he begins to act and behave in any way that he wishes. See, the, ma- the moment that the slave realizes his master is delayed is where we have the crux in the parable. But imagine that slave shock when the master does come back. I, I, uh, I, I, I didn't think you were coming back. And now he has to give account for the things he's done, expecting that that would never have had to happen. And so we find that Jesus is teaching us that whether we expect him to come quickly or not to come quickly, we should always be ready for a delay in the return of the master. Uh, There's a couple of stories that I think help illustrate this. The first is an old rabbinic story uh, about a woman to whom the king of the land came and said to the woman, I am going to marry you and I'm going to shower you with treasures and richness But first, I'm going off on a journey. And the king goes off on his journey. And the days turn into weeks, and the weeks turn into months, and the months turn into years. And everyone around the woman begins to say things like, he's not coming back. I don't know whether this is some sort of sadistic joke. I don't know whether he died, but he's not coming back. Uh, Other people would say, you are at the prime of your opportunity to marry and have children. And if this prime passes, you will never marry and have children. Everyone around her is encouraging her to come to grips with the realization that the king is not coming back. But she doesn't listen. She doesn't pay attention to those people. And guess what? Eventually the king does come back. And the king does marry her. And the king does shower her with riches. But sometimes those old rabbinic stories seem so out of touch that we say, well, that's not really anything like what my life is like. And so here's a little bit more contemporary of a situation. There's a 1995 movie called Castaway. In, in it, the, the main character, Chuck Nolan, proposes to his longtime girlfriend, Kelly. And the day he proposes to her, there's an emergency business trip overseas. He gets in a plane and the plane crashes. He doesn't come back. Weeks. Months, years. How long do you say, I'm going to keep waiting? Especially when everyone around you says, he's dead. It's time to face the reality. It's time to get on with your life. There's no point in kind of having this delusion continue. Kelly does, in fact, get married, have children. And the twist in the movie, close yours if you've never heard it and plan to watch it, is Chuck does eventually come back after several years. And the whole thing is complicated because she didn't wait because she thought he wasn't coming back. These are parables about people who lose hope in the delay. And they think, I'm going to move on with my life. I'm going to go ahead and, and, and have the assumption that he's not coming back. And I'm going to live as if he won't come back. And Jesus is showing us that this is not the right way to live in the midst of the end times. And it's especially a message for those who get excited about end times things, who who begin to mark times or dates and say, here's when it's going to happen, because when that doesn't happen, they are likely to feel what? Discouraged, and they're more likely to just throw up their hands and say, well, he's probably not coming back if he hasn't come back already. Jesus will tell another 
parable. Matthew 25, verse 1, then the kingdom of heaven will be like this. I'm going to stop there for a moment and just make sure that we notice the tense here. The kingdom of heaven will be like this. Jesus has been telling us an awful lot of, in Matthew, the kingdom of heaven is like, present tense. But here Jesus switches and makes this a future tense statement. That there is an aspect and an element of the kingdom that is already present. But there is also an aspect and element that is yet to come. And Jesus is going to teach us about that aspect. Ten bridesmaids took their lamps and went to meet the groom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. When the foolish took their lamps, they took with them no oil, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, all of them became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a shout, look, here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those bridesmaids got up, trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise replied, no, there will not be enough for you and for us. You had better go to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And they went to buy it. The bridegroom came, and those who were ready went with him into the wedding banquet. And the door was shut. Later, the other bridesmaids came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he replied, truly, I tell you, I do not know you. These ten women have something in common. They all have the same hope, expectation, and anticipation for the bridegroom. They want to be there. They want to be a part of these processions. But yet, as Jesus tells this parable, he is going to divide them into two groups, one being the wise and one being the foolish. The only thing that differentiates the wise and the foolish groups is those who took extra oil who were prepared for a longer wait. I mean, think about the conversation going something like this. Imagine you'd never been in a wedding before. And you say, so how long does it take for the bridegroom to come? And somebody who's been to a ton of weddings before says, hey, typically it's 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock. The bridegroom's going to be there. And so if you have enough oil to last three, two, three, maybe up to four hours, that's going to be plenty sufficient. Somebody else says, well, you know, but what if he's delayed? Should we take some extra provisions? And and some of them say, I'm not going to carry around all this extra oil for no reason. And so some of them take additional oil, and some of them only take the oil that they have in their reserves. But once again, what is it that complicates the parable? What is the, the conflict or the thing that transitions in the plot? It's the fact that the bridegroom was what? He was delayed in his coming. See, if the bridegroom was not delayed, you would have 10 wise people who are all there at the wedding banquet because it was the time that found out those who were prepared for a longer wait and those who would not. Why didn't the five wise ones share? Um, I think there's this recognition if you take the little bit that you have, you divide it amongst everyone. When the bridegroom comes, there's not going to be light for anyone. So the five foolish ones are forced to go off and try to find some additional oil. But I want you to notice what happens when they come back. They come back and they arrive to these words. They came saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he replied, truly I tell you, I do not know you. I think it's more than just a matter of curiosity. I mentioned earlier there's five main teaching sections in Matthew. The very first teaching section, which is the Sermon on the Mount, ends with this theme and this similar notion. Matthew seven twenty one. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, 
Or Matthew 7, 23, I never knew you go away from me, you evildoers. Both the first and the last sermon have the exact same endings, which is a word of warning for people who are not obedient to and not ready for living in the life where they wait for their master. Jesus is calling them for readiness, to be prepared for the call of the bridegroom to come. But there's all sorts of aspects in our lives where we might not be ready and where we might not be prepared. When I thought of this parable, I thought about it and something my kids taught me. I think it was last year, perhaps it was the year before, my kids were um, out at the Belgrade Youth Rally and Terry Crooks was one of the, the class teachers. And if you don't know Terry, Terry is an avid outdoorsman, uh, does a bunch of search and rescue stuff. And so Terry kind of knows all the things that possibly could go wrong when you head off into the wilderness to hike or to hunt or any of that sort of thing. And so what Terry did with the kids is he, he took his backpack that he always takes every single time that he goes out in the wilderness. And he began showing them all of the items that were in the bag. And so there's the, there's the toilet paper, and there's the knife, and there's the rope, and there's the flashlight, and there's the extra batteries, and there's the, the jacket, and there's all of these sort of things. There's the life straw. I mean, his, his, his backpack, I actually asked the kids, I was like, how big was this backpack? Because it sounded to me like Santa's, Santa's bag where you keep, you know, pulling all these things out. But again, Terry knows all the kinds of things that could happen when you go out by yourself. Prior to my kids telling me that story, every time I went out hiking, I had three things. Number one, I had a pocket knife. Number two, I had some water. And number three, I had my cell phone, which really comes in very handy when you're out in the middle of nowhere, doesn't it? See, Terry is the wise person. He goes out in the wilderness not knowing if this is going to be the time that he encounters something unexpected. And he's ready for it. Me, I think that somebody's going to call me up or send me a text and say, this is going to be the trip you need to be a little extra prepared for. See, in life, there's so many times and contexts and situations that we enter into without being ready for what might come, without anticipating the things that we might encounter along the way. And Jesus is calling us to be the kinds of Christians who anticipate and expect what it'd be like that we are on a long journey like a marathon, not that we're on a short journey like a sprint. You ever heard of anybody getting disqualified from a marathon because they had a false start? only actually happened once in the Olympics. I think it was 1953. But when it comes to the 100-meter dash, it happens all the time. Why? Because seconds matter. But we are not these sprinters. We are these long-distant runners. And so Jesus will say in Matthew 25, 13, Keep awake, therefore, for you, do not know, uh, for you do not know neither the day nor the hour. I think what Jesus is doing is he's summarizing his teachings from uh, verse 36 and down in that statement. This is not a summary statement of the parable. Uh, the reason I don't think it's a summary statement of the parable is because both the wise and the foolish did what? They slept. The warning here is for all of us to be awake and ready and alert for the coming of Jesus. When I think about these last days and I think about the question of when Jesus will come, it kind of reminds me of reading in a Kindle book. Uh, so probably I, I anticipate some of you have, have done that. There were certain books prior to Kindle that I would never, ever try to read. I mean, you just look at it on the shelf and it's like this thick. And it's so intimidating. You're like, there's no way I would ever get through that book. But I have inadvertently bought books that are that thick. 
I remember a few years ago, I bought the Lord of the Rings and I started reading and I read for three or four nights and then one night my finger accidentally touched and you know how you can see the progress bar and it said 1%. I was like, I've been reading this long and I'm only at 1%. So I watched over the next three or four days and eventually I got to 2%. This is going to be a big, long book. In human history, we are now in the second to last chapter of human history. We know the content of the last chapter. We, we know that Christ will come. Christ will bring and, and, and restore and consummate the full kingdom of God. But what we don't know is whether the status bar in the chapter we're reading is saying that we're at 3% or 33% or 93%. We do know there will come a time and a day that we flip across and say, finally, I made it. It's the last page. And we know that we're closer now than when we first began. But we don't know how much is left in the chapter that we're currently reading. What Jesus is calling us to in these first two parables is to be ready and attentive. Now, if you're wondering, well, what are we doing in the waiting process? All right, this is a pitch. You got to come back next week. Parable of Talents answers that question. This one says, wait and be ready. And the Parable of Talents is going to say, here's what waiting looks like, what faithful waiting for us as Christians looks like. We often focus on the questions of when, We look at things and we say, is this a sign? We look at COVID and we say, is this a sign of the end of the age? Jesus is more focused instead of on the when question, on the whenever statement. Whenever he comes, you need to be ready. See, what we like to do is we like to get out the calendar and we like to look and we like to say, Jesus, is this the day? I mean, circle the day for me so I can know when it is. And Jesus circles every single day, every single day. And he says, you need to be ready for this to be the day. You need to be ready for this to be the day. You need to be ready for this to be the day. I think about it like when I drive in my car, I always put on my seatbelt. In my glove box, I have my insurance card. And I never get into the car saying, this is going to be the day that I'm going to have a car accident. But I'm always prepared for that eventuality. And so the question I think that bears for us as we look at this parable is, am I ready today? And this is not a question of, am I ready today in terms of I'm going to sprint through this day to make sure I'm ready, but I'm going to be prepared for a long journey of faithfulness. That whenever Jesus chooses to come again, that he will not find me unprepared, that he will not find me unready. But what if you're not ready Take this opportunity to ensure before you leave this building to grab someone and say, okay, what if I'm not ready? And then we can share what being ready looks like. The first step of readiness is submission in the waters of baptism. The the first step of readiness is to give up our old way of living and embrace a new way of living and then being prepared. This may be a journey of one day or it may be a journey that lasts your entire life. But every day we wake up with the awareness, this may be the day that he chooses to come again. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Readiness is not a charge we have to accomplish on our own, but readiness is the awareness that God walks with us. And so we go then with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ with the love of God and with the fellowship of the Holy Spirit.